Welcome to Volume 3, Episode 6 of VMN. VMN is recorded and produced in unceded Abenaki land of so-called Vermont. Today we have a great treat. I am introduced, interviewing uh, Melinda Powers, who was active with the Prairie Fire Organizing Committee. I'm in my 50s, and I remember the days when Prairie Fire was ever present in national mobilizations. I still have a small collection of PFOC literature. Melinda will be talking about her time in PFOC, the lessons it holds for today, and her more recent activism. Welcome, Melinda. Hi, nice to be here. So tell, tell me about your time in Prairie Fire. <laughs> well, um, it's a very open-ended question, but I can say that um, prior to moving to San Francisco, where I got involved with um, Prairie Fire, I was living in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I was working with ACORN, which at the time was called Arkansas Community Organization for Reform Now, um, which had a bit of a checkered practice and history. I, and my sister came from San Francisco and said, come to San Francisco, there's so much more going on. So I went out to San Francisco and I was at that point, um, I'd never really been in an organization except I'd been in an anti-war organization in college. Um, and I was looking around at all these different organizations. Um, so basically, I ended up saying, I think the group I agree with most is Prairie Fire Organizing Committee. And I agreed with them the most in, because, first of all, there were lots of women in, in the group, which um, was not a given then. It's certainly not a given now. Um, people were very intelligent. And um, those mattered to me. What particularly mattered to me was, I think it was an organization that really believed that the nature of the United States state's system was basically irredeemable and that there needed to be fundamental change. And the, the thesis at the time, I guess, was there are two pillars of um, U.S. imperialism, white supremacy and male supremacy. Um, and, and although, frankly, I had no problem with the male supremacy issue, I must admit the white supremacy one was a little harder for me. I thought, wait a minute, that's me. So um, I... I agreed, but it was easy, certainly easier to agree about better, you know, male supremacy than white supremacy. <laughs> well, nowadays, activism seems to recognize that much more than it did in the 80s and 90s I mean, with, the, the, with the rise of uh, intersectionalism being so popular. I think that's true. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of uh, Prairie Fire, how it was created, and when did you come on board with it? There's a history prior to me joining, and um, apparently, well, the, when the weather when the weather underground decided that they wanted to, as people would say, surface or come up from the other underground, they put out a publication called the Prairie, um, a Statement of Prairie Fire. So people were distributing it, and so originally, what became Prairie Fire Organizing Committee was originally Prairie Fire Distribution Committee. And as far as I knew, it was mainly on the West Coast, particularly in San Francisco, but not only there. So by the time I came on the scene, Prairie Fire Organizing Committee was all, already an established organization. So I joined it. Um, 
through, I, I would, I would, they had a process of people being in study groups. So I was in the study group and I learned more both about prairie fires politics, but particularly um, also a more analytical view of anti-imperialism. And I decided that I, I, I wanted to join because I thought I agreed with the politics. I still agree with the politics. <laughs> How long were you with uh, Prairie Fire? And well, um, let's see. I'm trying. I'm trying to think because I moved to San Francisco in 1976, and then I really wanted to travel. So I, I was working with people. I didn't join then, but what I did do is. I worked as a temporary secretary and I saved all my money and I then traveled throughout Latin America and I lived in Chile for about six months. This was under the dictatorship of um, Pinochet. And that also had a major influence in my life to see not only from a theoretical point of view, but to see the reality, the impact of US imperialism on another nation. So then I came back and I actually started to go to law school. So that would have been 78, I think. And that's around when I joined. I then moved to Chicago at the request both of Prairie Fire. And we worked very closely with a, at then, at that time, a Puerto Rican and Mexican organization, the MLN, um, which in English is National Liberation Movement. And they, particularly the, the Puerto Rican grouping, wanted a lawyer, I was by then a lawyer, to work in a law office in the Puerto Rican community. So I moved to Chicago and then I stayed in Prairie Fire oh, until we disbanded. And I'm trying to remember when that would be, sometime in the 90s, I guess. Well, your name is still, the domain still exists and it points to your name. <laughs> Well, I don't know how that domain exists. We don't pay for it, but whatever. Well, somebody, somebody's paying for it. It's uh, really, uh, yeah, PrairieFire.org exists, and um, it's the uh, the website is broken, but it has the PO box and it has your number. That's how I reached you. I'm sure the PO box is no good. Let's, to all the fans, don't write any letters. You, I won't get them. Well, I, I wrote you an email and it bounced, but uh, I did the call. The number is the number for your uh, West uh, Town Law. That's right. I will say, as far as I know, because of course I'm here now in Chicago, I, as far as I know, every single person that I, I knew in Prairie Fire when I was living in San Francisco and here is still in one way or another politically active. Um, and although probably many people are not necessarily in a political group, I, I think the, the understanding of the nature of the United States has not changed. I mean, it's not as if the United States has suddenly redeemed itself um, and become, oh, this is a great place. But of course, for example, we used to have an anti-electoral position. Um, I don't have that position anymore. I vote in elections. I think what's to me been consistent is an understanding of the nature of the oppression of people of color, particularly people not in the United States, but also around the world, and the impact that both U.S. colonialism and U.S. imperialism have had on peoples around the world. And particularly, I work most directly with the Puerto Rican community here in Chicago. My office is right in the Puerto Rican community. And 
I've had a very strong connection working with the Puerto Rican political prisoners. So what to me is so interesting is seeing the impacts of U.S. colonialism on Puerto Ricans, both on the island and particularly here in the United States, where they are one of the poorest of the poor sectors of different oppressed peoples within the United States. I mean, it's not a competitive thing, obviously, because of course, Native Americans, Black people, et cetera, it's not like things are rosy for any of them. But but I see the impact of U.S. colonialism, first of all, in causing Puerto Ricans to come to the United States. And then two, just what they, the education that they're able to get through the public schools um, is inferior. And one of the wonderful things that I notice in working with the Puerto Rican community is they have a whole program basically to deal with the needs. They have an alternative child care center, um, then high school, which has one of the highest rates of students who graduate and go on to college in the city of Chicago. Um, they have a whole, actually, I think they were the first grouping in Chicago to have an LBGT homeless youth center called El Rescate, like with rescue. They have theater, they have a whole variety of activities. So I'm still very involved in working with the Puerto Rican community on their activities. In fact, Tomorrow, another lawyer and I are giving a tour along with the director of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center of the Puerto Rican community, particularly aimed at law students and lawyers. Well, that's excellent. And I, I didn't know that about El Rescate. One of, one of mm -hmm. my friends I went to college with worked with the branch, I believe, in San Francisco. I didn't know they were LGBT based, but it makes sense for who I was dealing with. With the Puerto Rican uh, political prisoners, how much have you been involved? I was, in 1986, there was a demonstration in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, it's a really dynamic demonstration that I attended. And they, I mean, there was a bunch of FBI people taking pictures. And because I, I'm North American, I was up there holding signs in front of them to keep them from photographing the Puerto Rican community in there. Can you talk a little bit about what has happened with the Puerto Rican political prisoners? Well, sure, they're all out now. Um, just a little um, backed up. On um, April 4th, 1980, uh, um, 13 Puerto Ricans were arrested in the Chicago area and originally charged with armed robbery. They were then ultimately charged with what's called seditious conspiracy, which is the charge that some of the January 6th rioters have right now. And up until recently, from the 50s up, in, up until the 80s, the only people charged with seditious conspiracy pretty much, except a few members of the Communist Party, were Puerto Ricans. And it's basically saying conspiring through the use of force or violence to overthrow the legitimate authority of the United States government. So um, 13 people were originally arrested. And then in 1984, three more people were arrested. I represented one of the three Alejandrina Torres, and they all took the position of prisoner of war, meaning that yes, they are fighting. And under United Nations laws, they have the right to fight for independence as colonized people and part of a colonized nation. So that was our defense in court, which um, didn't win the day, shall we say, because to wreck it for the 
US courts to recognize that defense would be to recognize that Puerto Rico is a colony. And although we actually had a wonderful judge, he wasn't gonna go that far. So then they were all convicted, all sentenced. They've all now been released as a result, particularly of a tremendous campaign that was started nationally and spread to internationally to demand their release. So what most of them, though not all of them, are back in are in Puerto Rico now, though some of the, actually quite a few of them were born in the United States or grew up in the United States, but they wanted to go to Puerto Rico when they were released and they're leading their lives. Is, is Puerto Rico under the insular decisions? Is yeah. it top? OK, so essentially you don't technically have the same. The Bill of Rights is in, in effect in Puerto Rico. In 1917, U.S. citizenship was imposed on Puerto Ricans, but as you're referring, there are a whole series of cases called the insular cases, which basically went up until the 1920s, which basically said Puerto Rico belongs to, but is not part of the United States, which means laws, the Constitution doesn't apply to Puerto Ricans the way it applies to people in the United States. If Puerto Ricans come to the United States, They have all the rights of other U.S. citizens, but they don't in Puerto Rico. And actually, there was just a U.S. Supreme Court decision on that very issue. And to me, the the interesting thing about the decision, um, it upheld the insular cases. But Judge Gorsuch wrote an amazing um, opinion. He concurred with the overall decision, but he said these insular cases are racist they're really bad. They should be overturned. And I'm asking, would people please bring a case challenging these cases? Just as a little aside, Judge Gorsuch may not be good on many things, but on Native American issues and on Puerto Rico, he's really actually quite good. I think somebody asked me, so so why won't the U.S. government do that? And I, I think the U.S. government, Democrat or Republican, wants to maintain Puerto Rico in firm U.S. control. They don't want to do anything that would allow it to be independent. The Republican Party may support statehood, though, frankly, I don't think too many Republicans want a Spanish-speaking state. And I think the Democrats don't particularly want it to be independent, so they're okay with the status quo. Can you talk a little bit about the the situation in Puerto Rico now? My understanding is since Maria, it's just, it's every, the grid's broken down. There's a, a lot of corruption. I do know of mutual aid groups that actually broke into FEMA warehouses and were finding stuff that was supposed to be distributed for Maria, not even just in in the crates still. Can you talk about what's at the sort of levels of of dual power that are developing in Puerto Rico and what's your gut sense about where that will go? Um, I I will talk about it to the extent I can. And let me just say this, what, what I would like to comment on, which maybe not commented as much, is the response both after Maria and after um, what, Ian, right? Wait, what's the one that just, yeah, not not in Florida, the one that just, Fiona, misknown Fiona. I'm Scottish. Um, so after Fiona, what you saw after Fiona is almost a replication in many ways of what happened in Maria. In fact, the bridge that had re- been rebuilt in the interior after Maria was washed away. 
the one good thing, a big, very important good thing is there wasn't the loss of life. But I, I think the problem is the infrastructure of Puerto Rico is not really controlled or run by the Puerto Rican people. Um, but here's what I think is really important to emphasize. And during in Maria, during Fiona, what you saw was a tremendous support that Puerto Ricans gave to each other on their community level, on a national level. Um, here in Chicago, for example, a lot of activity has taken place both around Maria and Fiona and um, getting money, getting supplies, taking them into Puerto Rico right away. Um, and also welcoming families into this community who had to leave. Because even if Puerto Ricans, I mean, they're, they're Puerto Ricans who are born here, don't even really speak Spanish. But I, I think it's extremely rare to ever meet a Puerto Rican who says, oh, I'm a Puerto Rican American. They don't say that. They are Puerto Rican because there's such a strong sense of Puerto Rican identity. Um, and, and I think that's something that's really, really important um, it doesn't mean they're independentistas or support independence. What it means is I'm Puerto Rican. I support, um, I support my people and I support my country. And I think that's a really strong um, strength, a really good strength of the Puerto Rican people until Puerto Ricans can really control the who comes in to fix things. I mean, the United States government sent in people who basically charged a lot of money and didn't do hardly anything after Maria. But until Puerto Ricans can really determine that, I, I don't think that what happens in Puerto Rico will be for the benefit of the Puerto Rican people. What can be done about the laws that prevent foreign ships from bringing stuff into Puerto Rico? I think it's the Jones Law. I'm not, I'm not a lawyer. It's, um, it's not, I'm blanking on the name, but yeah, maybe it's a Jones law, but but it was temporarily suspended under Maria. Um, I actually think if the insular cases could be overthrown, then I, I think that's a restriction that could then be not overthrown, could be um, changed or vacated, then a reverse. And that um, particular legislation could be challenged by saying, why does the United States get to determine this for Puerto Rico if they don't determine it for other places? So I think, unfortunately, unfortunately, it's sort of part and parcel of a package um, of basically Puerto Ricans taking back control of their nation. Who would have standing to actually challenge the, uh, the insular laws in, in Puerto Rico and, well, Guantanamo or the other... Well, what kind of case would have to be, be, would have standing? Well, the case that was just before the Supreme Court, which and the decision came out last April was a Puerto Rican man living in the U.S. was getting um, certain um, social, security, social security benefits. As soon as he moved to Puerto Rico, he no longer was able to get them. So he challenged that basically saying this law deprives me of my ability. I worked in the United States, I should get these benefits. So for example, Puerto Ricans who were adversely affected in Puerto Rico by the impact of the insular laws have standing to challenge the laws. So that gives you a lot of people. Um, and, and I think, I mean, I hesitate to say, oh, 
go file a case right now before the present U.S. Supreme Court as it's constituted. And I mean, I hesitate to say that about many different issues, but I think that's that's the venue is the U.S. Supreme Court. I think the timing may not be the best right now. We'll see. I had a discussion with a with a uh, trans activist today. I was driving her <laughs> to a uh, trailhead so she could hike. Oh yeah. And, and one of the things we were talking about is that bringing lo bringing laws to the fore right now with this right wing. Um, I mean, it's a right wing revolutionary counter revolutionary movement going on may not be the wisest thing. I mean, what do you what as a lawyer with tactics, what do you have to say about that? Well, I think that's a really good concern. I mean, because and it, there's a I'm part of a grouping of civil rights lawyers, um, lawyers who represent people who have been abused by the police or in prison, et cetera. And <clears throat> there's been an issue if a court on a lower level has basically ruled against us, should, should people appeal up to the Supreme Court eventually? And, and I think there's back and forth, but I think there is a big concern. You'll not only make bad law for your area, you'll make bad law for the, the rest of the United States by raising these different decisions. So I, I would be very cautious and concerned given the present composition of the court. After World War II, Germany had some, something called denazification. Uh -huh. One of the the discussions I have with a, with a human rights um, advocate friend of mine is that I think America may need detrumpification to get all the the Trump lawyers out. I don't know how that could be done, but what is your thoughts on that? I don't think that's possible, frankly, um, because I think denazification is one thing, but that, but these lawyers were appointed legally. Um, what I would say is, I don't think we can say the courts are the end all be all. I, I think we have to look for other venues and, and other avenues. Um, and I think particularly those can, those other venues and avenues are basically relying on people to try to demonstrate, to try to build a movement, to try to force change to happen. And I, I don't, I don't think it builds strength among us. Um, and to basically say, let's try to do things with the Supreme court. I mean, that, that's not how change really makes happens. I think I'm not the Okay. Brown versus board of education. It wasn't just some judges saying, oh, let's make this change. There was a huge movement of people demonstrating and demanding change. So why go to a venue where that you know is worse than unfriendly? It's it's a poll, it's oppositional, and it's not going to change now. Um, I mean, which doesn't mean it won't change, but it's not going to change right now. I, I would say look to other avenues where we can build more um Re reliance on ourselves and more of a movement that can impact things. In your work and and seeing over the years, have you seen any places where there's been some sort of a dual power situation where people, the communities are basically taking over, where governments are not doing what they need to do, or just exercising self determination and. In a, in a community level? 
Well, I mean, the best example I know is here in the Puerto Rican community where they have their, as I said, their own child care center, schools. Um, they, they have a philosophy of the community, uh, community learning center. The whole community is the center of learning. I mean, they have huge fiesta, um, street fairs, and, um, which are regular fairs, but they all have um, a nationalist aspect to them that brings out about being Puerto Rican. Um, alternative theater, they have, they were one of the free, well, not probably around the time many people did in Chicago, they had and still have um, HIV um, organizations that do work for, here's just, I mean, this is not to say the Puerto Rican community has always been that way, but when I moved here to Chicago in 1981, there was the Puerto Rican Day Parade, which was always in June. So, um, there was then there was the Puerto Rican parade downtown, which was like big corporations, tons of money, et cetera. Ours was ours was more in the community. And they there'd be floats and there'd be like cute little kids and all that, but there'd also be stuff about environmental destruction in Puerto Rico, about um the political prisoners, about the alternative high school. Well, here's what's developed: a variety of things that developed. One, the downtown parade doesn't exist anymore. The people from downtown have either, I don't know what they've done, or joined this parade. Every year, the float starts out with a beauty queen. The beauty queen is a transgender, transvestite person. I mean, that is a transformation of the Puerto Rican community. There was this, unfortunately, after the Pulse um, murders in Orlando, Florida, the um, basically gay nightclub, that was fairly shortly before the parade. There was a huge memorial for the Pulse. Um, so P there was sort of this Puerto Rican nationalism, support for gay and lesbian issues in the parade. And, and to me, that's not that wouldn't have happened 30 years ago. I, I don't know when. I mean, but, you know, it's it's a transformation. And, and I guess I kind of think that in a certain sense, that reflects a transformation in society in general, where I think there the there's so much more appreciation, acceptance, et cetera, of gay, lesbian, trans people, et cetera, which does not mean there's not opposition. But I, I think it's something that's very deeply felt within the Puerto Rican community, because of course there are lots of gays and lesbians in, in the Puerto Rican community. Yeah, I was pretty, pretty close with Sylvia Rivera, who's a famous <laughs> uh, Puerto Rican mm -hmm. trans pioneer. Can you talk a little bit about Vieques, what happened in Vieques with the environmental destruction? Mm -hmm. Well, yes. Um, after World War II, the United States basically took over, not all, but a large portion of the island of Vieques, which is east. It's a small island. It's east of the mainland of Puerto Rico and basically set it up for target practice. What that meant, it meant a variety of things. One, the main industry or source of income in Vegas had been fishing. So setting off the bombs was totally destructive for the fish. Also, the bombs would land on the land and people got sick or actually injured as a result of that. A huge movement started. Basically, I know I've been to several activities in Vegas opposing um, the U.S. military in Vegas. There have been 
but also, I mean, so many people went, for example, Isabel Rosado, who was a Puerto Rican nationalist in the 30s, who was imprisoned uh, for basically supporting independence from Puerto Rico, went to Vieques in 1979 and was arrested there. Some of the former Puerto Rican political prisoners from 1954, um, including Lolita Lebron, went to Vieques. And she also, uh, I'm not, actually, I'm not sure if she was arrested there, but she was in, in Vieques. So the movement was successful. And to me, I think it's so interesting. You look at they were successful in getting the U.S. Navy out of Vieques. They were successful in freeing their prisoners. The Puerto Rican movement has had actually a tremendous amount of successes. So now the U.S. Navy is basically out. But one, there's still a lot of destruction in Vieques. There's still a lot of contamination in Vieques. And unfortunately, what's happened um, is... It's such a beautiful place, but a lot of white people from the U.S. have moved in and opened up hotels, etc. So it's um, it's now in Puerto Ricans' hands, but, and it's not the level of destruction that when the U.S. Navy was there. But still, it's not. It's basically being taken over by a lot of people who view it as an opportunity to make money, and mainly people from the U.S. One thing I've heard about Hurricane Maria is that, um, to some extent, the, the U.S. powers that be let that happen, knowing that developers could go in and scoop up property um, cheap and basically turn it into a vacation land, not a, uh, a place where actual people <laughs> live. Is that is that far-fetched to say that? Well, I mean... The U.S. government couldn't control where Maria, Maria landed. I, I, I don't think that at all. No, I mean that the with the allowing the, oh, everything okay. to rot and not actually helping people in, after Maria. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if it's a, a strategy or not, but I will say um, I think that goes along with what I mentioned earlier that there's no possibility of a Spanish-speaking nation being admitted as a 51st state. Well, what's happened is a lot of mainly white people from the United States have come in, bought a lot of land, particularly around the coast, not in the interior. They don't want to be there. They want to be by the water. So it's forcing Puerto Ricans out because people don't have jobs or, or as you mentioned, their houses maybe got partially destroyed. They don't have the money to rebuild. So you go to these, I don't even know if the word's enclaves, I mean, because it's bigger than enclaves, of basically all these incredibly fancy, fancy sort of condos, et cetera, and it's all white people who are living there. So I think what's happening, unfortunately, is a lot of Puerto Ricans are forced to leave because of destruction of their houses or residences it's hard to get jobs. And then a lot of white people moving in who view it as a vacation home. They don't want to live there year round. They just want to have Puerto Rico. I mean, it's part of the U.S. They can do what they want. They don't have to worry about passports, et cetera. So. Yeah, it sounds a lot like how, how cities become gentrified these days. The neighborhoods are left to decay. The right. cities don't do it. And then developers move in and turn turn a black community into say a college uh, place for college students or young right. people. 
Right. Yeah. Now I have about five more minutes, so I don't okay. know. There's a couple more questions I want to ask okay. you, and then uh, then I guess I'll see you off. There, there were other a number of other organizations related to Prairie Fire or uh -huh. organizing committee. There's JBAC, May 19th, and others, I assume. What can you tell us about them? Well, JBAC, John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, was a project uh, of Prairie Fire Organizing Committee started, as far as I remember, started by Prairie Fire, but not exclusively composed of membership um, of Prairie Fire members. And it was very, very active in Chicago, confronting issues about white supremacy in the area of Chicago. There was also a Puerto Rico Solidarity Committee, but we talked a lot about Puerto Rico. And there's also different groupings that people in Prairie Fire participated in. There was the Women to Women campaign, which was composed of women here in the, in the U.S., particularly, though not solely Chicago. Chicago, some from L.A. and San Francisco, working in solidarity with women's organizations in Nicaragua and El Salvador. Back to John Brown Anti-Klan Committee, it was, it was very, very active. I mean, there were actually Nazi and KKK activities in, in the city of Chicago and John Brown uh, would go, anti-Klan committee would go confront them. So uh, I think it was very successful for a while. And as I say, I wasn't as directly involved in it. So I can't say why isn't, why wasn't it anymore? I, I don't know, but I think it, it really raised the issue about white people's responsibility to confront the most blatant forms of white supremacy, people who are affiliated with the KKK, et cetera. To bring things up to the very day, have you been following the uh, mobilization against the Ku Klux Klan that happened last weekend in Tennessee? And the and in, in November, there's an upcoming mobilization against, uh, there's a conference called the Amran Convention. It was chased out of Washington. Then it went to the the Virginia DC suburbs, and it went to Charlotte and anti-fascists had driven it out. It landed in Tennessee and the state of Tennessee has been rolling out the red carpet, bringing in prison guards to do security for this thing. What are your advice? They're saying it's a first amendment thing and they, these 300 fascists gather there every year. And the, in the last 10 years, they don't allow the, the First Amendment rights of the protesters to protesting in it, but they protect these people like they're royalty. Any thoughts about that? I'm sorry to say I hadn't heard about this at all, so I really appreciate you filling me in about it. So the issue is, should is it the KKK or other groupings? Well, KKK was last weekend, but what I'm mainly working on these days is the American Renaissance Convention. It's a white supremacist organization headed by a guy named Jared Taylor. And it brings in Klan, Nazis, racist conservatives, all sorts. And it's been doing it for the last 10 years in, in Montgomery Bell State Park in Tennessee. And mm -hmm. they hardly allow any protest of this venue. And this year, the uh, Amran has rented the whole park so the public can't even get near the venue to protest. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a bit of a hard one, actually, for me, because on the one hand, 
I don't obviously support Nazis, right-wingers, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, I suppose if they want to voice their opinion, they can voice their opinion. I, I think there needs to be confrontation of them and, and exposure of them. I mean, so, but, you know, these ideas, I mean, Trump was the biggest organizer for the right, actually. And I think he was able to successfully not bring out ideas that people would never have had, but encourage people to act on ideas that maybe they had thought but might not have acted on. So to me, the issue is, what is the impact that these um, organizations have in terms of organizing themselves, organizing other people, impacting what happens in the United States. And I, I guess to me, the real issue is why does white supremacy and racism have so much appeal to people in, in the United States? I mean, I think we, we know because, well, people may, everybody might have different reasons for why they think it has so much appeal, but I, I do think it is the history and the, of the United States and I, I think it gives people, white people, this sense of they're better than other people and gives them power and privileges. I mean, it's not just an ideology. It's a, it leads to a material reality that allows people to do things that uh, people of color don't have those power and those privileges. So I'm not sure if I think it should be, things should be banned. I mean, that's, that's a tough one for me. Um, but, but, but I do think there needs to be public exposure and confrontation. Yeah, we're going to be down there doing that. And it's just been, it's been up an uphill battle and, uh, <laughs> we would like, we've been trying to get enough money for somebody to support a, a first amendment lawsuit saying that we're not allowed to meaningfully, uh, oppose and confront uh, this in a public park. There's also the issue, it's, it's in this absolutely gorgeous park, uh, an hour out of Na Nashville, mm -hmm. and the public, the public is denied access to this park on that weekend, which is going to be November, it'll be gorgeous down there, and the public is denied access by these militarized security. I mean, they bring in buses of prison guards as well as the state police to keep anybody from getting near the uh, facility. Last year wasn't so bad, uh, but it's been one woman was arrested because there was no bathrooms and she went somewhere uh, where she thought was private and they charged her with indecent exposure, even though there were people holding banners up around her and she was a nurse and she got charged with the sex, what's a sex offense in Tennessee. Oh my. Um, it was terrible. I mean, it's a bad history, this event. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's going to happen with this podcast? Well, the video will be stripped from it, and um, the audio will be put up at Vermont Movement News. Vermont Movement News was a project of the Liberty Union Party at one time. It was done by uh, Bernie Sanders, and since he left the leftist uh, Liberty Union Party to become an independent politician, we decided to bring it back, and mm -hmm. it it failed as a newsletter, so I kept the domain and use it for a podcast, and it will be available on Vermont Movement News. That's what's going to happen to it. Okay. All right. Well, this it's, has been a pleasure. Thank you for letting me be on. 
thank you so much. And I'd love to talk to you at some later point. And let me uh, read you out and it'll be the end of the podcast. It'll, it, I usually take about five days to edit it. So if you want to pass it around, wait uh, for five days and then Vermont Movement News will have it. Okay. This has been VMN, formerly known as Vermont Movement News with Melinda Powers. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Have a great day. You too. Bye.